Hi, this is Chris Hart, host of Plugged On with Chris Hart, and I'm taking Michigan over Michigan State in their game October 21st. Bet Online has free odds and lines available online or on your mobile device. Visit Bet Online today. Welcome to the podcast Crime Salad, where we talk true crime. I'm your host, Ashley, and with me always is my husband and partner in crime, Ricky. The purpose of this podcast is to honor the victims through ethical storytelling in the hopes of preventing future tragedies. We want our stories to resonate and educate others in hopes that some of these similar cases with identifiable patterns can be prevented. Now, before we jump in, please let us warn you that this is a true crime podcast. The details of this episode may be triggering to some listeners. Listener discretion advised. In custody disputes, it is almost always in the best interest of the child or children to maintain close and regular contact with both parents. In these types of disputes, emotions can run high. And for a myriad of reasons, some parents may feel like they should have more or all of the custody of their children. Sometimes these preferences arise from valid and tangible beliefs that the other person or their living situation can be a danger to their child. There may be abuse or substance abuse issues. However, for other individuals, the intense desire to maintain sole custody is punitive in nature. The aggrieved party may not have wanted the relationship to end, and they see the child or children as a way to punish the other parent. And even in these more contentious situations, it is still rare for one of those parents to choose violence as a solution to their problems. In extremely rare cases, if one of the parents is highly disturbed, they may choose violence, including the plan to harm or kill the other parent as a means to achieve their goal. The decision to resort to such extreme measures may be influenced by a combination of personal factors and underlying psychological issues. Well, in today's case, when both parents involved in the custody dispute are psychiatrists, the solution becomes even more unsettling. One would expect individuals with a background in mental health to possess a greater understanding of the consequences and the importance of seeking peaceful resolutions. However, it is crucial to remember that even professionals in the field of psychiatry can face personal challenges and vulnerabilities that can cloud their judgment and decision-making abilities. After all, we're all human. Some of those vulnerabilities may include emotional instability, control and power dynamics, disordered thinking, and fear of losing their children. Regardless of reasons, the taking of another parent's life is universally regarded as selfish and evil. No parent has the right, outside of a case of self-defense, to take the life of their child's parent. It does irreparable harm and inflicts immeasurable emotional and psychological harm on the child.
Now, usually before a disturbed parent turns to violence, they may turn to a tactic called parental alienation. Parental alienation refers to a complex dynamic that occurs in high-conflict custody disputes or post-divorce slash separation situations, where one parent actively or indirectly manipulates or influences the child to reject, fear, or distance themselves from the other parent, basically alienating them. The purpose is to slowly break down the parent-child bond. This includes bad-mouthing the other parent in front of the child, limiting or interfering with the child's contact or visitation schedule, making excuses as to why the child can't visit the other parent, interfering with the communication between the child and parent by blocking calls, intercepting messages, or distorting their content. Another way parents may do this is by creating false or exaggerated allegations of abuse or misconduct against the other parent. And finally, one parent may encourage or reward the child for rejecting the parent or showing anger or hostility towards the other parent through bribery, manipulation, or emotional coercion. Needless to say, employing these tactics can have long-term effects on the emotional and psychological well-being of the child. That brings us to today's case. After many years together and the birth of their son, Calder, in 2008, Dr. Michael Weiss and Dr. Pamela Bookbinder, both renowned New York psychiatrists, made the painful decision to break up shortly after the birth of their son. And four years later, they were still both fighting over their child's custody, In fact, Pamela was doing her best to turn her son against his father. She had made allegations of physical and sexual abuse and had told many people that Michael had never paid child support. Now, from a review of court records, all of these allegations were found to be untrue. Michael never abused his son and he paid child support from the moment that the two stopped living together in 2009. Further, from a review of court records, it appears that their relationship was extremely toxic. On one occasion, Pamela broke a glass and attacked Michael with it, resulting in him needing stitches. On that occasion, Pamela was arrested for domestic violence. On another occasion, Pamela made an accusation that Michael had threatened to kill her and had pushed her. On that occasion, Michael was arrested. Both incidents resulted in dropped charges. Now fast forward to 2012, after years of fighting it out in family court and countless unfounded accusations, the two finally reached a custody, visitation, and child support agreement. One of the reasons for this agreement was that Michael just wanted to see his son without having to endure another baseless allegation of physical or sexual abuse. All of these accusations had to be investigated, which meant during that period, Michael was prevented from seeing his son. And each time, the accusations were found to be untrue. Now that Calder was four years old, he could talk and be interviewed by a forensic specialist. Pamela knew that her days of making baseless accusations were coming to an end, but she had other plans to prevent Michael from seeing his son. Now, in the short term, Pamela agreed that she would retain physical custody of Calder and Michael would have what she considered generous visitation. 
It included one overnight visit per week with his son. The biggest obstacle to this agreement was Pamela's insistence that Michael obtain a large insurance policy against his life for the benefit of their son. Eventually, he agreed. Michael agreed to maintain a $1.5 million life insurance policy naming his son as the beneficiary. But just a few months later, Pamela was back in court insisting that Michael change the life insurance policy to irrevocably name Pamela as the trustee of the policy in the event that Calder was under the age of 18 at the time of his death. Irrevocably means that it is a final decision and cannot be reversed. And while the money was technically Calder's, there are ways that would allow Pamela to spend the money on Calder's behalf. For instance, she could enroll him in a private school and pay the tuition from the insurance proceeds. Of course, this seems like a reasonable expense. However, Calder would need a roof over his head so Pamela could use the proceeds to purchase a property. And of course, Calder would need transportation between home and school, and Pamela could use the proceeds to purchase herself a car. And you probably can see where this is going. This means that there were 1.5 million reasons why Michael was worth more dead than alive to Pamela. On November 12, 2012, three days after Michael agreed to name Pamela as the irrevocable trustee of the insurance policy, A 19-year-old man by the name of Jake Nolan was making plans to harm Michael. And Jake wasn't a stranger. He was Pamela's cousin and patient. After Michael's patient left, he went out into the hallway to find Jake. Jake told him he was there to get some papers for Calder's preschool. Then he asked to use the bathroom. When Jake came out of the bathroom, he was carrying a large duffel bag over his shoulder. Just as Michael asked him to put the duffel bag down, Jake allegedly took out a sledgehammer and swung it at Michael's head. It narrowly missed him, connecting with his shoulder instead. And he was fortunate to miss the full weight of the 20-pound sledgehammer as it could have easily incapacitated him. But it did knock him off balance. Jake didn't expect to miss Michael and he was taken off guard for a minute. The sledgehammer was so heavy and cumbersome that Jake knew that Michael would have time again to dodge the next blow. He made a tactical decision. He reached into his backpack and pulled out a knife. Later, Mike would identify this knife as belonging to a set of knives that he purchased for Pamela when they were still together. According to an interview Jake gave to CBS News for the show 48 Hours, Jake said he stabbed Michael once in the chest. He followed that up with seven more stabs while Michael continued to fight for his life. He stabbed him in the stomach, the back, legs, arms, and hand, anywhere he could find an opening. Michael, who was 6'3 and 205 pounds, was able to fight off Jake and overpower him. That's when Michael found himself in possession of the knife and he stabbed Jake several times, hoping to finally end the life and death struggle. His first stab was to Jake's collarbone area, but Michael thought he had been stabbed in the heart and was mortally wounded. While one or both was trying to elude the attack, they both stumbled out into the hallway where they managed to capture the attention of the neighbors. 
That's when various neighbors began calling 911 and asking for police intervention in an ambulance. One neighbor explained that the victim was a psychiatrist who was being attacked by his deranged patient. As Jake lay on the floor bleeding, covered in blood, he managed to raise his hand and took a selfie with Michael in the background bleeding out. Then he did something odd. He sent that photo to Pamela, Michael's ex and mother of their four-year-old son. During his interview with CBS News, Jake was asked why he took the photo and why he sent it to Pamela. He stated that he was reporting back and wanted to know what to do next. When police first arrived, Michael was unconscious, bleeding out onto the floor. That's when Jake told officers that Michael had stabbed him and tried to kill him. However, the neighbors were under the impression that Michael was the victim and Jake was the attacker. Police decided to treat them both as suspects and determine the truth after both men had been treated for their wounds. They both required surgery and they both miraculously survived. Again at the hospital, while Jake was handcuffed to his bed, he texted Pamela. That text read, quote, In the hospital, please come. Michael bleeding badly, same. I walked into the office, he stabbed me with my knife in the heart. Pamela hadn't responded to the selfie, but she did respond this time. She asked where. Jake told CBS News there was no plan for after the attack and he felt dismissed by Pamela. However, according to a lawsuit filed by Michael against both Pamela and Jake, he stated that while at the hospital, he saw Pamela trying to speak with Jake on the grounds that she was his doctor and he was her patient. Both the hospital staff and the police refused to allow Pamela to speak with Jake. At this point, Jake was in a full psychotic episode. In Michael's lawsuit, he alleged that Jake was found with a hand-drawn map of his apartment and home office which was supplied by Pamela. He felt like this was proof that Pamela had orchestrated the attack on him. However, Pamela had an excuse for that one. She said the map was simply directions given to Jake to pick up the financial paperwork needed for Calder's preschool that day. She told both Jake's family and the police she had no idea why Jake would attack her ex, other than to say that she believed Michael must have attacked him first. Now let's talk a little bit about Jake. When he was first born, he was the third of three children and considered to be a gifted child. He was raised on Long Island, New York to Jim and Debbie Nolan, where he thrived. He was always inventing things and had won awards for developing a flashcard app as a youth. He was described as happy, loving, and engaged. However, around the age of five, it became clear that Jake was different from his two older siblings. It was at this time that he was diagnosed with ADHD and placed on pharmaceutical medications. For a while, this helped until Jake started to go through puberty at the age of 13, and he was diagnosed with anxiety and depression. Jake had days where he was excited to take on the world and then days where he couldn't get out of bed. By the time that he was 18 years old, he had been on over 30 different medications. 
After a suicide attempt, he was finally diagnosed with manic bipolar disorder. He was struggling in school and failing out on his first year at college. That is when Jake's cousin and Debbie's niece made Jake a generous offer. As a psychiatrist, she was qualified to adjust Jake's meds, but was willing to go one step further. She invited Jake to live with her and her four-year-old son, Calder. She agreed to see Jake as a patient and get him back on track. She wanted Jake to know that he wasn't just a charity case or a burden, so she gave him a job of acting as Calder's caretaker. She also told him that he was now Calder's godfather. Jake thrived under Pamela's care, and his entire family realized that Pamela was responsible for saving Jake's life. Jake only wished that there was somehow he could repay Pamela for making him a part of her family. Each morning, Jake would get in bed with Calder and Pamela like a little happy family and talk about their day and what they had planned. Jake had a sense of belonging, and someone other than himself needed him in a meaningful way. Jake felt important. Pamela was also seeing Jake several times per week as her patient as well. Pamela would leave notes for Jake telling him how special he was to her. She referred to him as lovey and darling, and Jake took on the role of Calder's surrogate father when they were together. They both missed Calder when he was with Michael, and Jake soon learned that this made Pamela very upset. Now, it's important to note that under every circumstance, Pamela's living situation and status as Jake's doctor would be considered a conflict of interest in a massive breach of ethical boundaries. One of the most basic reasons was that she was serving multiple roles for Jake as a family member, an employer, and a healthcare provider. The blurring of these boundaries can create significant ethical challenges and potential power imbalances. The exploitation and unequal power dynamics put Jake in a vulnerable position where he can become dependent upon Pamela for all of his physical and emotional needs. This includes his mental health and his financial and emotional needs as well. In short, these rules created a situation where Jake felt like he owed Pamela in unhealthy ways. Professional code of ethics, such as those outlined by the Medical Association, emphasize the importance of maintaining appropriate boundaries, avoiding conflicts of interest, and ensuring patient welfare and impartiality. All of these were merged into a situation where Jake felt like he had to protect Pamela. Later, there would be allegations that this was Pamela's intention all along. She wanted Jake to be dependent on her, and ultimately she wanted him to kill for her. Now, four days after the attack on Michael, Jake was arrested for burglary and attempted murder. He was released on a $200,000 bond into the care of his parents who were now living in Miami, Florida. It was while he was outside of Pamela's influence that Jake finally told his family and his lawyers what really happened. Now, we know that when police first arrived, Jake told police that he had been stabbed by Michael, something that Michael obviously denied. His second story was that he only brought the sledgehammer and knife to protect himself because he was afraid of Michael attacking him. He claimed that he never even swung the hammer and it was too heavy for him to lift. 
In the third version, he claimed that Dr. Weiss pulled the sledgehammer out of his bag and attacked him first. This, of course, made no sense at all. It still didn't explain why Jake even showed up in the first place with a duffel bag with a sledgehammer and a knife inside from Pamela's kitchen and a bag of zip ties. Now, soon after the attack, Michael sued Pamela for custody of their son. He alleged that Pamela was the mastermind behind the attempt on his life and Jake was her weapon. A family court judge reviewed all of the evidence and witness statements and concluded that Pamela was involved in the attack. The most damning evidence was video surveillance of Jake and Pamela at Home Depot where Pamela paid cash for a sledgehammer and zip ties. Jake admitted to his psychiatrist that the zip ties were so Jake could torture Michael. She wanted him to use the sledgehammer to stun him, the zip ties to restrain him, and the knife to cut off his testicles. As a result of this evidence, the judge granted full custody of Calder to Michael and barred Pamela from any direct contact with her son for a period of at least five years. And this devastated Pamela. However, despite the legal conclusions in the family law court, Pamela had still not been criminally charged for her role in the attack. One of the reasons for this was because the complaining witness against her was Jake Nolan, and he had a history of psychiatric disorders. It seemed that Pamela had created the perfect human weapon and the perfect built-in defense. Now, Jake He spent most of his time awaiting trial in and out of treatment facilities, trying to come to terms with the ways in which Pamela had brainwashed him and betrayed his trust. He was also treated for drug and alcohol addiction. He was self-medicating himself from dealing with the consequences of his actions. At one point, he tried to poison himself, which resulted in him being placed in a coma. For days, his outcome was grim, and his family was told to prepare for his loss. Jake's mother said that no one could understand what had happened to Jake while he was under Pamela's care. The Jake that they knew would never hurt a fly. But in a matter of months, Debbie Nolan's niece had almost turned her son into a murderer. She had a deep feeling of remorse and regret for placing her trust in her niece, Because of that one fateful decision, her son was now facing decades behind bars. Finally, in March of 2016, more than three years after the attack on Dr. Weiss, Jake finally went to trial. He pleaded not guilty due to diminished capacity, a capacity that was allegedly diminished at the hands of Pamela. When a person's mental capacity is diminished, it means that their cognitive abilities, judgment, or decision-making process may have been impaired due to factors such as mental illness, developmental disorders, intellectual disabilities, or intoxication. The diminished capacity can impact the person's ability to form the required intent or possess the necessary mental state for a particular crime. In legal proceedings, a claim of diminished capacity may be raised as a defense to argue that the defendant's mental condition prevented them from possessing the specific mental elements required for a particular offense. The prosecution portrayed Jake as an entitled, spoiled rich kid who thought he was untouchable and could even get away with murder. 
Jake didn't tell police that Pamela manipulated him into killing Michael for several weeks after the attack. Based on this and his previous versions of events, he was considered an unreliable witness and narrator of facts. To compound this issue, Jake had admitted to a state psychiatrist that Pamela had told him several times that Michael wasn't paying child support and was physically and sexually abusing Calder, and the court was allowing it. She portrayed herself as a victim. She would often refer to their need to, quote, terminate Michael as if it was an extermination of an unwanted pest. Eventually, they both talked about the need to protect Calder by terminating the problem until Jake thought it was his idea too. However, he confessed to the psychiatrist that Pamela wanted Michael tortured. Jake stated that while he intended to kill for Pamela, torture was a bridge too far. So he had made an independent decision that he wouldn't torture Michael. The prosecution contended that this was proof that Jake was in control of his mental faculties and had the ability to make the independent decision to kill but not torture Michael. Another part of Jake's defense was that the only way to save Calder was to kill Michael. But the prosecution countered this with a financial motive. Michael testified that he believed the motivation was financial. He had just named Pamela as the irrevocable trustee three days before the attack on his $1.5 million life insurance policy. He alleged that Pamela was going to pay Jake out of these proceeds which she would have explained away the cost of Jake acting as Calder's caretaker. And Jake's defense countered this by saying that their client had no idea that money had been involved. They alleged that Pamela had never told Jake about the life insurance policy, nor did she offer him any money to kill Michael. Jake was only trying to protect Calder at Pamela's insistence that he needed to be terminated. The defense went on to say that Jake was a member of a cult, a cult of two people. Pamela was the ringleader and Jake was her only member. She knew exactly what to say and do to turn him into a lethal weapon with lethal intent. Jake never took the stand in his own defense. After a three-week-long trial, the case was finally given to the jury. After only an hour, they came back with a guilty verdict. Jake and his family were devastated. Jake said, quote, It's unjust. I'm no harm to society. I know what I did was very serious, but there is also another party who needs to take responsibility too. That person is Pamela Bookbinder. The judge disagreed and described the attack as an act of brutality and violence. He then sentenced Jake to nine and a half years in prison. His family was in shock. They believed the wrong person was behind bars. Jake was the weapon, but Pamela was the cause. Jake won't be eligible for release until April of 2024. A year later, on October 19, 2017, almost five years after the attack on Michael, Pamela Bookbinder was finally arrested. She was arrested outside a friend's house in upstate New York and charged with second-degree attempted murder and first-degree attempted assault. In a press conference, the Manhattan DA accused Pamela of masterminding the plot against Dr. Weiss. 
They alleged her motivation was revenge for his rejection and financial control of her son's inheritance. Michael's attorney said that they were pleased that she was finally arrested and would face charges for her part in his attack. An attack to this day has left him with post-traumatic stress disorder. Of course, Pamela maintained her innocence and stated she had no idea her cousin was so disturbed. She insisted she had nothing to do with his decision to harm her son's father. She believed that he made the independent decision to harm Michael out of jealousy. Jake had started to think of himself as Calder's father and wanted to eliminate the competition of Calder's affection. She maintained that despite living with him and treating him, she had no idea how profoundly he was disturbed. Pamela's family hired two high-powered criminal defense attorneys who insisted that their client was innocent and that they would prove it during her day in court. Pamela had to remain in jail because she couldn't afford to post the $2 million bond. The reason for her high bail was the fact that she was deemed a flight risk. Despite having no contact with her son, on the day of her arrest, she was found in possession of her passport, Calder's passport, and both of their birth certificates. Her family offered to post her bond of $1.5 million, but this was denied. Her attorney said the case has already been solved and that Jake already admitted to the attack. His client's participation in the murder was merely a defense strategy and not rooted in fact or evidence. Of course, the prosecution strongly disagreed and the judge agreed. Pamela was held at Riker Island pending her trial and her trial wouldn't be set for another five years due to the COVID pandemic and regular trial delays. The biggest piece of evidence in Pamela's defense was a note that Jake wrote to his mother right after the attack. This was before he began implicating Pamela. The note read, quote, Pamela has nothing to do with this. She's completely innocent. Her attorneys used this as proof that Jake acted alone. However, the prosecution contended that this was written while Jake was in a manic state and heavily medicated. They stated that at the time Jake wrote that note, he was still loyal to Pamela like a cult member is loyal to their leader. On September 7, 2022, during a pre-trial hearing, Pamela seemingly changed her mind regarding her defense strategy. She accepted a plea bargain to spend 11 years in prison in exchange for pleading guilty to attempted assault, which is a lesser charge that may allow her to keep her medical license. However, less than a month later, Pamela tried to retract her guilty plea. Her lawyers told the judge that she wanted to withdraw her plea because it had been coerced. On the day she pled guilty, she had been exposed to mace at Riker Island. She had not taken her medication that day and she had inadvertently gotten a contact high when someone was smoking drugs on the bus ride to the court that day. Mace is a chemical compound derived from hot peppers. It is primarily used as a non-lethal deterrent for personal protection. When sprayed, it can cause severe irritation and inflammation of the eyes, nose, and skin, resulting in temporary incapacitation, pain, and discomfort. However, it does not directly affect cognitive function. The judge denied Pamela's request and found her reasoning to be absurd, and he reinstated her guilty plea. The Manhattan Assistant District Attorney Joel Setterman told the court, quote, 
I think it's necessary to make the record straight to tell the truth about what really happened in this case and the great evil of this crime. The defendant tried to have Dr. Michael Weiss murdered. She hated his guts. She sought to destroy him because of their failed relationship. She stood to control $1.5 million life insurance on his life in the name of his son. She wanted sole custody. She is on video in all of her academic genius buying a sledgehammer. She wasn't smart enough to outwit the NYPD. Now, when Pamela was allowed to speak, she stated that, quote, I am so sorry that we are all here today. If there was one true statement, Mr. Setterman said, I must have missed it, which is a nice way of calling the DA a liar. Judge Farber stated, quote, There can be no doubt that if you plot to bash somebody's head with a sledgehammer, that the intent is to cause his death, end quote. Then he sentenced Pamela to 11 years in prison and issued a permanent order of protection for Dr. Michael Weiss. Now, with good behavior, Pamela could be free as early as 2027. Dr. Weiss stated that he feared for his future safety upon Pamela's eventual release. He stated in his victim impact statement that, quote, I continue to believe she will do anything in her power to harm me regardless of the consequences, regardless of any damage that she has caused. I really believe her plan is to try again later. I am grateful to have survived the attack and to be standing here today. I'm grateful this matter is being resolved with a plea deal and avoiding trial. Pamela's lawyer said that it is her goal to gain her freedom and reestablish her relationship with her son, who will be 19 years old at the time. And that completes this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening and being a part of Crime Salad, especially to those of you who join us on Patreon. This week, we have a few new shout outs to make. We have Christine, Allison, Amy, Brandy, Sherry, Charlotte, and Janet. Thank you for supporting the show. Enjoy the ad-free listens. All right, we will see you next week. <laughs>